0: to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, c one Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing okay this winter season, wherever you are. The coronavirus keeps mutating and vaccines are coming in too slowly, so I wish you the best in whatever situation you are in. I hope you stay healthy and safe. I am currently on winter break from teaching until after the Chinese Spring Festival, which I'm spending staying at home and working on some new projects. It is also Black History Month, although hopefully you're celebrating Black History Month year-round, and not just the month of February. It is important to remember and acknowledge our painful histories as opposed to keeping them hidden from view. This is not just a one-month sort of thing, but a constant work against the forces of racism. I hope that is something that we always keep in mind. But for today, I have a really special episode with Ilana Harris-Babu, an artist who uses music videos, cooking shows, and home improvement television as a starting point for her work. Ilana's sculptures and video installations are, in a sense, an abject exploration of the American dream. Ilana got her B.A. in art from Yale University, followed by an M.F.A. from Columbia University. Afterwards, Ilana taught at Williams College while doing a string of residencies and shows. She has been featured in places such as The New Yorker, Vice, and Art in America, and exhibited at Anton Kern Gallery, Jacob Lawrence Gallery, and the 2019 Whitney Biennial. Most recently, Ilana moved back to New York City and is a resident artist of pioneer works. I talk with Ilana about her working process in the studio, getting into the Whitney Biennial, and the troubled history of labor through reparations. Again, stay safe and healthy wherever you are, and I hope you enjoy this. All right. Uh, so, yeah, right now I am talking to Ilana Harris-Babu. And right now, I th- are you in uh, still in Williams or are you in New York or where are you? Uh, I'm in Brooklyn now. I live
1: okay. in Brooklyn now. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. And um, I'm really excited to talk to Ilana. I've known about your work for quite some time. And thank you so much for chatting with me.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How's, how's your day been? How's your week been?
1: It's been all right. It's like i I, my fridge isn't working
0: your fridge is not working
1: yeah and so i had this morning like well i bought all these groceries yesterday yeah so then i don't know why it just made me really you know sometimes something just makes you like an outsized amount upset it just made me very upset this morning so i went to go buy like some bags of ice and like put them in
0: and oh, hopefully no. does
1: something. But it was like one of those things where I was like, oh, I got this like special cheese. I'm really excited about, you know, like I got all these like perishables that I was like <laughs> extra excited about. So oh, no.
0: this, that's a long-term problem, right? If, if your refrigerator isn't working.
1: Yeah. So hopefully the the management company opens later today. So I'll give them a call, okay, but it's yeah. second time it's
0: broken. Yeah. So are you right now living full-time in New York or are you, are you, okay. All right. So you're no longer teaching at Williams.
1: No, I'm not teaching at Williams anymore. I was there for, I guess, kind of three years. I took a semester off in the middle and then I was there, like, I guess it kind of delayed, like COVID kind of delayed my move back to New York a bit. So then I was there like until July with my roommate up there. And then I finally got to move back to Brooklyn, which I've been trying to do for a while. Oh
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and it feels really good.
0: Yeah. Well, Williams is definitely not Brooklyn.
1: Um, yeah. yeah. It was beautiful. It was like I. It was such a like shock for me when I first moved there because like I like I didn't know how to drive. Like no one in my family knows how to drive. Like yeah. everything. about the landscape was like so different. But I think that it is like a there's a nice nature situation there when it's not winter so it was really beautiful like in the spring and all of that
0: yeah you don't like winter
1: no i mean i feel like it was just like all of a sudden you're making all these like light death defying icy road decisions just to get to work and like yeah. it's like i remember once i was trying to make these ceramics I think January 2018, uh-huh. like for a show, it was in February. And like the ceramics company wouldn't deliver the they said it had to be above zero degrees Fahrenheit for them to deliver this the clay or else it would arrive frozen and oh, it just wow. didn't get that warm.
0: <laughs> Jeez. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I was like, this is not this is not a life. But but then it's like the most glorious place in the world in the spring and the summer. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Uh, it's just really fleeting. But you're like, I felt like, oh, I understand now, like holidays, like Easter and stuff, because yeah. it's like, it really felt like the world was dead. And it really yeah. feels like it was, it's a miracle that it's alive again. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess I've actually spent the majority of my adult life as a resident of New England, strangely enough. Yeah. Yeah. Which I wasn't expecting.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So you grew up in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. How, how was that?
1: Uh good. I mean, I guess it's like I knew nothing else or something. I don't know who you feel, but I just thought um New York was like the whole world or something.
0: Yeah, yeah I thought that too uh, until I moved and
1: then Yeah. 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 Yeah, And I got to get some perspective, but I remember being like the first time I think maybe I went to like Western Massachusetts, my older brother was living there. Uh And the quiet just was so terrifying. I was when I was a kid, like, I just didn't even know what to make of that amount of quiet.
0: Yeah. And then while growing up, were you always doing art?
1: Um, I think I started doing art more, I guess, in high school, I always had exposure to a ton of art. Yeah. Cause I went, I had a scholarship from like kindergarten to St. Anne's school. Oh, nice. um, Yeah. In Brooklyn Heights. And so they have a really good arts program, really great teachers. And so like a lot of my teachers from there, I'm still in touch with today and to my shows and hang out with them. And so I feel like they know my work better than anybody. Period. You know, they know what my six year old self was thinking about. Um, but yeah, so I, I had a really good education, which was great.
0: And your parents, what, what do they do?
1: Um, I grew up really living with my mom mostly okay. and um, my grandma, my sister. And my mom was a nurse at Downstate Medical in Brooklyn uh, for 30 years or something like that. She retired of like a while ago, I okay. think like eight years ago or so. So now she's just a retired nurse.
0: <laughs> and Helping you out with your art.
1: Yeah. And um, my dad is um, he does like radio and stuff. And there weren't really so many Senegalese immigrants that came to the U.S. until like the late 80s. Okay. so he's kind of one of the first ones. And he did um, a lot of them are cab drivers. And so they'd be up late. And so he did a radio show for folks oh. like up late at night and stuff like that. So then he does like still kind of news stuff, like updating people's stuff in Africa and then what's happening in the US and um yeah.
0: No, it's important too thinking about home. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a lot of my relatives keep watching uh like news from different parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> And were, what did your parents think of your art when you were growing
1: up? Um, I think my mom, I think that they were into it. I mean, they are definitely supportive, like proud of that stuff. I mean, I think that uh, both my parents have a very laissez-faire uh, approach generally, <laughs> in a <laughs> general sense. So uh, whatever like I wanted to get into, I feel like my mom would have been fine with it. Um, I think that she really valued Education, you know, I think maybe she would have wanted to have access to more things when she was younger. Maybe who knows? Maybe she would have even been an artist or something like that. But yeah, I think also part of it was that there's my siblings are really she had me like in her late 40s. So I had siblings that were a lot older than me. And I think it was like kind of like, oh, they did fine. So, you know, like by the time you get to the fourth one. Yeah, yeah. Less pressure. Less pressure. Yeah. You're like, oh, this will (laughs) probably. Happen, she'll probably do the right thing. I think I was also like a kind of um, a very serious acting kid, you know. <laughs> and what, what do you mean
0: serious acting kid?
1: Like I just didn't get into trouble. Uh, thirteen. Okay, okay. yeah.
0: I Yeah, you kept your head down, did, got good grades, and yeah.
1: Yeah, or like I guess the equivalent because like St. Anne's doesn't have grades. Oh, okay. Um, which is was great. I mean, I think that that was really, I think that's really the great thing about it is that you have to gain a sort of an independence in that way early on because you have to have your own internal compass as to like whether or not what You're doing at is succeeding, and I think maybe like some folks, then when they get to college, they're totally sort of overwhelmed by the accountability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but then I think in other ways, it maybe gave me some perspective, like vis a vis my grades when I had when I got to college, that I, I had a different way of orienting myself, yeah,
0: yeah, and also art too, right, which has yeah, grades.
1: Yeah. How do you how do you even do that? That's what I felt. Yeah, every time when teaching I'm like, how do I even yeah,
0: do this? I, I always want to give all my students A's. I'm just like, you just need to show up and do the work. I don't care what yeah. kind of work. That's that's all that matters.
1: Yeah. Especially the Williams students were super like like really cared about their grades a lot oh, really? and like would try to give me sometimes contest like an a minus or something really? and i'm like life is not going to affirm you in this way <laughs> you know like you gotta just let go of it now i think
0: yeah yeah totally and then i'll also say like most if you, you know especially if you're getting an art degree it's like most of the jobs you apply for don't care too much about grades it's your portfolio yeah you know, but i don't know um yeah and then you ended up going to yale for art yeah and um what kind of work were you making then
1: um, I started out doing painting uh-huh. like when I was younger. I do like oil paintings and yeah. stuff like that, you know. I think I felt like painting was like the serious artist <laughs> major. I think or, most like, of us do. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's usually just like twenty something, thirty something art majors a year yeah. in the undergrad at Yale, So it's not a ton and like most of them don't actually want to be artists. Really? Or it's maybe it's their second major or something. Huh. Yeah, you know, maybe they like want to go to med school or something. So there are usually I feel like maybe there were like five or so, five, seven people who maybe planned on or really want to try to be artists. And I think a lot of folks were like drawn into painting. Um, there's actually a really great photographer, Faral Kasmi, uh-huh. who um, was around at the same time as me, too. I think she actually did a lot of painting back then and I don't, I'd don't have to ask her but Yeah. So I did painting and then I started to get kind of frustrated with painting. I felt like there's really only one moment in the life of a painting I was excited about. And that was like when it was it was when it was still wet and messy Uh, and like in a state of like becoming. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think in a lot of ways, like that's how I turned to video is like just this revelation. Like, oh, why don't I just show people that moment? You know, the moment that really excites me.
0: So do you still consider yourself a painter or no?
1: I mean, I don't think I can call myself a painter really any longer because I think in a lot of ways, I've just like sort of even forgotten how to like navigate a 2D plane. Um, (laughs) You know, I definitely can't draw anymore, but I think I still think I think a lot in like painterly ways or think about framing. Yeah like a video in a way that I would have thought about painting or think about color Yeah, in a lot of those ways. And I think in some ways also it's like a language of talking about art that I still feel comfortable in, but yeah, I don't think I am a painter.
0: Yeah. No, I asked that question. Cause I, when I, when I first um, learned about your work and I was drawn to it, I found a lot of similarities with how I thought with the way that you were describing your work, you know, you coming from a painting background and, I also started out as a painter and whenever I think of my videos, I always think of like composing them as if it were a composition of a still life or, you know, I, I won't even use like uh, some footage if I don't even think it would look good as like a, as a still from, yeah. a, paint, from a painterly sort of composition or color um, perspective. And uh, that's sort of how I see all, all of my decisions now, even though I don't really paint.
1: Yeah, I feel you definitely on the same page.
0: At this, so you made the switch to video in undergrad? Yeah. Oh wow. Well, well, are any videos that are currently up from undergrad, or you were still? Um,
1: not on my website. It might be like buried in my Vimeo, but <laughs> okay. I don't know if I even want to encourage anyone to go okay. digging in there because there's all kinds of messy stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but I still like. I mean, I still like the work, and I still sometimes like if I'm getting giving an artist talk or something to like undergrads. I'll like maybe show some of my undergrad work because I feel like a lot of the thoughts, thought processes I had then are still in the work and yeah. hopefully it'll give them some, I don't know, sort of inspiration.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then and then so did you take a gap year before you went to grad school?
1: I took a year. I I don't know if I'd call it a gap though necessarily because I was doing this fellowship at um Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh-huh. And they call it um, the Fifth Year Fellowship. And it's for someone the year after undergrad. And I'd say like maybe you're sort of like a professional TA, like a TA for the senior thesis. And then they give you a little studio in there. Yeah, I guess it was kind of a trailer, a temporary trailer building that was the art studios. (laughs) And then I think they expect like you'll be applying to Uh... grad school like while you're doing it. So I didn't necessarily think I'd g- get into grad school, but then I figured, oh, if they think I can go, then yeah. maybe I can go.
0: Yeah. That positive reinforcement is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I had a year that of being, I think maybe they only gave you like $8,000. So a very Wait, broke to live, year.
0: To live in yeah. Connecticut?
1: Yeah. So I had to get... um. I mean, it's like, Harvard's affordable, but it's not that yeah, affordable. No <laughs> yeah. So I did stuff, like, I I worked in Hartford uh, public schools, and, okay. um, yeah, I was, I was mainly being broke, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was interesting, because Trinity is very privileged vibes, and going back and forth between that and Harvard public schools felt like getting in out of, like, an ice bath and a hot shower over and over again. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then you uh, got into Columbia. Were you were you mostly applying to, uh, you know, New England or Northeast schools?
1: No, but I didn't get into any of the schools in L.A. I wanted to go to L.A., but I didn't get, the, I guess L.A. didn't want me to go to L.A. So, uh, and I think actually in the end, it was for the best to be in New York. I mean, I think I probably wouldn't have been working with my mom in my videos. If yeah, yeah. I had been out there to, I think it was good to be in New York in the end.
0: I mean, it's your home.
1: Yeah, every year I still feel like this. I'm like, this is the year I'm moving to California, and then it never happens.
0: Well, now, yeah, now it's burning. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if California wants anyone coming there.
1: But I feel like there's like nowhere that I can say, "Oh, climate's like not gonna get me." You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I yeah, feel like-
0: <laughs> yeah. I know. It's it's hard. It's hard. Mm-hmm. I, I've I lived in LA for two years, and I yeah, I thought I'd return after I left, and then now I don't think I will.
1: Mhm. Yeah. I'm a, I got a little bit of asthma, so it might,
0: yeah. might be hard. <laughs> yeah, that would be hard. Yeah. So how did your work change in grad school?
1: I mean, I think it was great to just have so many conversations. I think like at first there, it feels like just too much because maybe they're trying to like pack in as much as possible to justify the, the price. Costs. I don't yeah. know, but- yeah. <laughs> But like, I mean, it was really great to iterate through. So I felt like so much of grad school is like figuring out who to not listen to. Also, uh, that's,
0: that's a good piece of advice.
1: Yeah. But like to iterate, to, sometimes it felt like I'm talking to you about what I would make if I wasn't so busy talking to you or something, <laughs> you know, just like, but I was, yeah, I think also the like other students are really great. And it was, it was, yeah, it made such a difference to iterate through so much feedback I think I don't have any regrets about going to grad school young. I think that it helped me maintain momentum in terms of making, I mean, I probably would have not been down with the price of the, like, you know, whatever I had, I would have had a more um, concrete sense of the price of the school if I had waited, which maybe may have been better or worse, or I don't know. Yeah. Um, who knows how I would have felt about it, like with more adult perspective.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> but um, Yeah, I think also just like I learned there, just I got, I grew a lot in terms of technical ability from growing, like working with people, like working in the equipment cage or Uh, what have you. I learned a lot from Peter Clow, who runs it. And so I just could learn almost from other people's technical mistakes, you know, or technical issues. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And
1: apply it to my own practice. And I feel like I see a lot like, a lot of the style of what it was like working there in terms of like how we did zip ties and stuff. And like Uh, say like Sandra Perry had my job before me the year uh, before me. And like, when I look at her work, sometimes I see the like ways we were taught to like coil cables and Uh, stuff like that.
0: I don't know. How, um, I'm not sure I know how to coil cables properly, but yeah.
1: Yeah. You want to like kind of, it kind of goes the way that it wants to go, if that makes sense. Cause people yeah. like stretch it over their arm right. and And it becomes
0: like this mess.
1: Yeah. But if you kind of just let it do its thing, it goes into maybe like a circle, a circular mm. spiral mm. usually.
0: Yeah.
1: And I learned a lot of ceramic stuff from um, Hector Garcia um, and Julia Phillips, two really yeah. great ceramics artists taught me so just a lot of stuff learning like outside of the classroom about just how to make stuff that was really great
0: yeah and so I mean I'm glad you brought up the ceramics Is what is the interplay and relationship between the ceramics and the video are they sort of happening at the same time or are they sort of happening in you see them as working different parts of your brain and then you sort of combine them later
1: um yeah I think like I just started making ceramics because they're like fun to make you know (laughs) And then I feel like so often with a lot of work you make, you like make up what it's about, why you did it afterwards yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, but I think they're like mostly for the, like I was thinking about them as the props and then the sets and mm-hmm. my videos at first. And then maybe they sort of like took on more of a life of their own. I think like a lot of my work, my videos will kind of start from something like an imagined object in my head that I like build a world of context around. So in reparation hardware maybe I was thinking about this idea of a ceramic hammer as like this object that like undo itself through it's really very use like yeah. a, a tool like that and wondering then if like the American project was such a tool or something and like in my latest show Decision Fatigue I imagine maybe first like this like Cheeto face serum and like what would it be to have like to be kind of obsessed with this kind of chemical just like to kind of just like just like a cheeto face Room just seemed really funny after going into like the goop store or like obviously yeah. like um so I'll usually when i'm thinking of a video i'll like be thinking of a world of objects that exist like parallel to it and i didn't really show the videos with the sculptures for a while
0: yeah
1: because uh, i think it needed enough space to build context like i don't think it really makes sense like in a group show if it were to be like video and then some sculptures on a pedestal or something. Yeah. Uh, cause then I feel like it would be like, here's the artifact from the video, which is yeah. not necessarily how I think about it. So I like, if I can like build a whole world where the monitor sits and the sculpture sit, then that works best for me.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I ask cause that's something I also think about a lot. But yeah, and then in in regards to your reparation hardware, I mean, that was actually the first piece I saw of yours, actually. I think I, I, for some reason, I learned about you through a New Yorker article. There was like that New Yorker article about you, and I don't read the New Yorker that often, so I'm trying to remember even why I came across <laughs> that article, and I just was mm-hmm. reading about it, and, and then I looked you up, and that's actually, um, yeah, the first video I saw uh you know, I was struck by, I guess, when watching your videos is sort of how you play with, you know, um, I think you, I feel like you play a lot with different styles of video making. Right. You, you go back and forth between this sort of YouTube style video and then sort of a sort of like satirical. And then sometimes the, the video kind of is like very high quality in terms of the equipment. And because I was thinking like the cooking show and then you had the red source book, which it was, you know, these very nice stills of you opening the book and highlighting things in red. And then even after that, then you went back and you shot some videos like the, um, design fatigue, where like you went back to a sort of like YouTube video making, uh, mm-hmm. style. And that was, I guess the first thing that I was struck by. And I was wondering if you could talk about these shifting styles and how that kind of goes into your process.
1: Yeah. I think that, uh, I... When I started making videos, I had to figure out like, okay, what rubric? How am I going to edit these videos? Like, what structure will I use to like kind of organize this footage? And I knew I didn't want like some a really kind of like long shots, not like now moment like situation. Yeah,
0: okay.
1: <laughs> but I wasn't looking so much at cinema either, mm. and so it was really kind of what are the videos that I'm watching a lot of which were like music videos or like cooking shows, like things that I was watching on YouTube. Yeah, And so then kind of editing. And also it always felt most natural to me to like edit to say either the timing of the beats or sometimes I guess it's comedic timing to figure out how to structure the shots. Because I don't really, um, I just shoot a whole bunch of footage. I don't make a storyboard or a script or anything like that. And then the, the things that resemble narrative sort of come together in the editing process. Mm. So that will give me like, these kind of familiar forms will become this armature upon which I can structure my footage, I think. But I... I didn't even really own my own camera until like last year. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what I'm interested in too is just how like maybe one nice lens could even make a cheap camera or a cheap setup seem really fancy, like, or nice lighting, you know, even in a cooking show, like something totally gross could look delicious if you light it really well. So I'm, I'm definitely interested in that sort of trickery too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think these days it's you can get really nice footage even from your phone, right? Yeah. You know, I think not last year's two two Turner Prizes ago, the the woman who won it, like Charlotte Proger, I think it was the entire video was shot on an iPhone. Mm. You know?
1: Yeah. So. This we will be like making our own VR stuff, I guess. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, being able to do the VR on our phones. <laughs> the other thing that I was... Thinking about, you know, I think you talk a lot about your work being sort of critique on taste, you know, talking about deconstructing the aesthetics of taste and also how we are shaped by it. And I'm just curious, like, do you, how do you, how do you see your role as, as I guess, a sort of tastemaker in terms of when you're making your, these videos?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because in a lot of ways, like as artists, I think we're seen as arbiters of taste.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, but then it's also something that maybe we don't we don't always interrogate. And I feel like we're, our taste is such an accumulation of just an accumulation of all these sort of things that aren't us that just kind of ha- so happened to be around us or that we were born into or stuff like that. So I think that like oftentimes it's like me asking myself, like, why are you attracted to that thing? Well, kind of spur me to make a piece about it. Like, um. why do I why do I want to um, watch these cooking shows or why do I want to? And then out of that, i start to think about how I can mimic it, mimic the form. Um, and then just kind of insert like a wrench or something in the gears of the thing. Yeah. I think also, cause it's like, because I'm me and I'm human. Like when I try to, I start often by trying to sincerely mimic the forms that I'm looking at, but because I'm just me and I'm a normal person, I inevitably fail. And then I just sort of lay all those failures <laughs> bare, you know, in the final video.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, I liked I think I read somewhere you use the word, you know, for your reparation hardware reparations as another way to talk about failure, which I really like that that use Mm -hmm. of the language. Do you watch a lot of cooking shows and home improvement shows and
1: Um, not so much anymore? I think like I'll start making a thing when I'm looking at something a lot. Mm. I like. Liked a lot of the kind of little short, for, maybe I had some kind of New York Times website subscription through school or something. Uh-huh. But like I was looking at a lot of the like short form cooking videos they used to have on the front page. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, like things like that, that could just like are just enough to give you like the energy of cooking the thing, but not quite enough to be instructional.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: And so then I think like I started to give out home improvement TV when I moved to Richmond. And I was doing this uh, fellowship at VCU. Oh, yeah. 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 And they gave um, us an apartment and it was like in this, the uh, fellowship was actually funded by the like real estate company that owned the apartment complex. So wow. it was like very, was, yeah. And I think they're Ayn Rand fans. So that's why it's called Fountainhead Fellowship.
0: <laughs> is that related? Um, is is that related? Do you know, there's a residency called Fountainhead in Miami? Yeah, I don't
1: think they're, I don't think they're affiliated actually. Oh, okay. Um, okay. and, and so like, yeah, there was like a swim, my studio was like on the other side of the swimming pool from like my apartment in this like complex that I think it was like, they wanted to have artists living in these
0: yeah.
1: developments. They were, mm-hmm. you know, how goes, these developments they were doing in this industrial part of town.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I, it was my first time living alone and it like the apartment came with like cable and stuff like that. And so I just like needed other voices, I think, in the space. So I just leave HGTV like running on the television.
0: Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because because mm-hmm. vid- those videos have that sort of quality to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How How is Richmond?
1: I really liked Richmond. I think it's one of my favorite cities I've lived in. Oh,
0: nice.
1: Yeah, I was really like afraid. It's so weirdly really actually the furthest I've ever lived from home, which uh-huh. is wild. Um, so I was definitely really nervous before I moved there. But I just think the arts community is so great and and vibrant and you can just make big things or ambitious things because the cost of living is cheaper and these like really great food and the people at VCU are just so, I don't know. Yeah, I just think there is like a certain sort of exuberance push students. The students are so great, like would really push one another to do things yeah, I just really liked the city a lot. It was obviously strange living in, like, at that time especially, it felt like just a giant Confederate monument of a city, you know? Like, you cross the Robert E. Lee Bridge to get uh, to work, yeah. and the Stonewall Jackson, such as, like, eggs, the Stonewall Jackson eggs Benedict at brunch. Really? And like the, <laughs> Just, like, so much everywhere. So, obviously, like, I think, I mean, being there in 2016 and then also just being there made me just think about the civil war a lot and yeah kind of led me to reparation hardware in that way yeah but yeah I definitely get nostalgic for Richmond I liked it
0: yeah I haven't I haven't been there I mean I haven't it's so far away from everything so I haven't had a reason to go there specifically but I've heard yeah I've heard interesting things about it good things Mm -hmm. yeah and when you were making reparations hardware, yeah, I was really drawn to it. And I was curious, you know, I, I, I know you've talked a li- uh, bunch about it, but I think for the you know listeners of the podcast, if you could talk a little bit about like how that sort of started.
1: Yeah, I think, um, so I had made a video finishing a raw basement that was like, took, it kind of had a, this old house format. And I shot that in Richmond. I made it for a sculpture center for the basement of Sculpture Center for that open call. Um, oh, nice.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I've applied to those once. I think once or twice, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, So that was a good opportunity to have like this deadline right after grad school to work towards, I think. But uh, during that, I was thinking a lot about just then and home ownership in general. And so then who has access to that and has access to owning a home. And a lot of the times I feel like ideas come up through just like kind of playing around with words and how they feel coming out of your mouth. So we were saying repairs, repairs a lot during this piece. And so then reparations kind of came up. And this also idea of like the American dream, because I remember, like, Trump was campaigning, too, on that. Like, he was like, the American dream is dead and stuff. Uh, So that just the phrase was kind of bouncing around, I think, too. Yeah. And so then it was like, I got this opportunity to make a new piece for um, DIS when they were launching uh, their website disc.art yeah. yeah and then they had described it like edutainment by artists so like art that could have a sort of educational component uh, too, okay. or it's more maybe in a certain didactic face or something yeah yeah And so that's when at first I was imagining reparation hardware almost as this like Ken Burns style thing, or maybe it would be like that. Um, Thinking about the Civil war. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah. So then I had just been thinking about restoration hardware and Uh, like the, um, the kinds of videos they come out with and they come out with a new line of furniture. They'll have these YouTube videos where there's like mm -hmm. a designer in a bucolic landscape talking in really open terms Mm -hmm. about where they find inspiration. And I felt like it had, that character had a lot in common with some of the other characters. I think about like the cooking show host, you know, like this person who has this whole world that they're building around themselves and they're surrounded by things that they've made or, and they're like a success and all of that. And also thinking about how that character is similar to or different from like all the tropes we have around an artist too, like this kind of genius between walls making things. So I, I started looking at that and I was looking at this, um, it was for a collection called the salvaged wood collection, which is like, like these like $3,000 tables made out of wood from like old abandoned barns or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about, like, why, what attracts us to these things? These, like, where we want to know the provenance of the material. We want (laughs) to know it's really old and authentic. (laughs) And I was thinking, like, oh, in a lot of ways, it's because it means, like, you can get to take the past into your home and, like, get it and take it into your home, like, tastefully, too, you know? And in so doing almost sort of name the past as a success, you know, I was thinking a lot about them, like, nefarious nature of nostalgia.
0: Yeah. At yeah. The time um, America was great again. Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah so um, and of course, great for whom. And so yeah. then, yeah, thinking about reparations, when you mentioned like reparations as failure, I was thinking about because it didn't feel like on the table at all. But, you know, now I guess there are some candidates who were talking about it, even in the debate stage and them primaries but at that time it felt like not on the table at all for anybody politically and so it was like why are reparations so terrifying for so many folks and like in a lot of ways it's because they name the past as a failure
0: yeah
1: and like a failure in economic terms specifically
0: yeah yeah I mean and also like I think it's funny I know this happened after but like you know in terms of your your video and what it was doing I thought of I think I think the the year after Trump was elected, so it was after your video was made. I think Ivanka had that like, I think Thanksgiving spread of how to like have a tasteful Thanksgiving decoration, and it was like reclaimed wood from the beach, and it was like oh, wow. it, it was like a ten foot piece of like you know weathered sea weathered wood, and then you know people comments and the internet was like. Who, who has the manpower to like drag like a 10 foot used piece of wood by a beach <laughs> into your home and much as <laughs> live by a beach house right and all these different sort of questions and I thought it, it related directly to your video
1: mm-hmm. yeah all this like kind of aspirational media
0: yeah yeah and then you were at VCU and you were teaching there right it was a teaching gig
1: yeah. So you teach two classes and then they gave you an apartment and a studio in town. And yeah, I, I really liked teaching. It was in the sculpture department. I think it was a great way to kind of be introduced into what it was to teach because you could be so improvisational there.
0: Yeah.
1: And it, in a lot of ways, the class felt like a collaboration with the students because um, they seemed to be very independent minded already. Yeah. And there, just, it didn't get super cold in the winter. So a lot of like, you could just kind of walk somewhere in town and, and see what was up there. And it was great to be able to like use their facilities and all of that too, of
0: course. Yeah. And then were you, did you always see yourself as a, as a teacher?
1: Yeah, I definitely like teaching. I think that I always saw myself like if I were to get an MFA, like part of it would be so that I could have a qualification to teach. I mean, I never I think I always imagined that that would be like if there was um, a jobby type aspect to being an artist, mm-hmm. I think that would be it. You know, yeah. If there was like a health insurance related, you know, like. Yeah, a, mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I feel like to me, art is like always in this space of pedagogy or something like and so it's also a great opportunity to always push myself to like keep learning you know, because you have to learn to be able to then share, even like in really simple technical terms, you have to keep getting um, updated on what, yeah. what's out there. So yeah, I I've, I've I feel like so lucky to have, basically until this year, I've always had like a full-time teaching job since grad school, which feels like really um, atypical. And like, it was really helpful to then make me feel like, in a better position to be more like freelancy this fall
0: yeah are you freelancing teaching like adjuncting you mean or you're what what do you mean
1: i'm just trying i'm just doing different projects i did like i'm doing like this fall like it's like 20 like class visits or artist talks like just so many it's just like it gets like a little bit like sometimes like i've overdosed on talking about
0: myself 20 yeah that's like a job (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And I am I am going to adjunct one class. It's a half semester class. So it hasn't uh-huh. started yet at SVA. It's like a senior thesis uh-huh. class. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I will be adjuncting. But um, I think that, yeah, I'm just glad that I had that kind of regularity before that. Now I feel like I know what I want to get out of juggling so many things. Not that I have good time management or actually juggling things properly. Like I am just like still trying to figure that out, but I wouldn't have had time to do as many artistic projects and stuff if I had still been doing the full-time job on top of all of this other stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 Time's the one thing we can't get more of.
1: Yes. So true.
0: Yeah. And then so from VCU, went to Williams and you taught there. How was teaching in Williams?
1: It was cool. It's like very different student body, of course, because um, it's a like liberal arts college. I think like the majors are like tend to be like econ or STEM. Like yeah. huge percentage like athletes in the school, and just yeah, very small school. So in a lot of ways, like that kind of New England waspy type of a place was like you know i was familiar with it from having gone to yale Mm um but then in other ways like the students felt like much more type a even than yale students really which surprised me yeah
0: that's i think surprising statement
1: (laughs) yeah i think maybe it's just like some kind of they feed off of one another's energy or something Uh like that yeah but then just like so like you could assign a reading and then show up and everyone did it and like it was all highlighted, so that was like fun in that way in terms of conversations. Yeah. Um. But definitely, people are more like assignment oriented. Tell me what to do, kind of like call me. They like they would only call me professor, you know. So there was yeah. Very that's always
0: weird. That's always hierarchical.
1: Weird. Yeah. Situation happening, but like it's just a it's just like such a wealthy school that you can't help but just like benefit from all the
0: resources. Resources. Yeah. 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 Do you you ask your students to call you Ilana or do you let them...
1: I'll, like, sign my emails, Ilana, and stuff like that, and say, I'm Ilana. And then maybe some of them will then go, Professor Ilana. But, like, (laughs) it's just really hard. It's, like, kind of built into them or something to just say, Professor. And then they'll be like, hi, Professor. They'll be like, thank you, Professor. And they leave the classroom. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. They are cute. yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had a few other questions about your work. Um, and then I think your last year, so in the last year you at Williams, you also had a show at the Whitney Biennial, which, which I saw online and the, I believe it was human design, right?
1: Yeah, so I showed um, Reparation Hardware, Red Source book, and then I made Human Design to kind of think about it like a trilogy or something it's like that to round it out.
0: Ah, I didn't, I never, I didn't think about that. But okay, yeah,
1: yeah. So they were kind of a set of three. I was, had been—I was totally done thinking about Restoration Hardware, but then when I had the opportunity to do this, do the Biennial at the same time, I read that like Restoration Hardware was opening up this new like. Hotel, and then also a new like mega store right next to the Whitney, and so it seemed like too good of an opportunity not to like revisit it, Um, and that's how I started working on Human Design. I just like kind of started sneaking around the store from opening weekends, like (laughs) trying shooting video of myself, pretending to be the CEO, and like looking at what was up in there and stuff.
0: No one, no one, no one knew what you were doing.
1: No, I mean, I think like after a while, probably the like staff categorized me as like some kind of category of like non-threatening, crazy person (laughs) that maybe they have, you know, they probably have a set, you know, like set of those individuals who like come in pretty regularly. And probably if you just stay that their energy felt to me, like maybe it's commission based, or something the uh, pay. Uh, so, I think maybe as long as they stay out of their way or something. Yeah, yeah. But in I tried to shoot in uh the Beverly Hills restoration in Yeah, and oh. there just cuz I was in LA anyway, okay, so yeah. and there they like shut you down immediately if you take out a camera. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, cuz it's LA. Yeah, you can't you yeah. can't shoot anywhere without a permit, especially if it looks like a video. Yeah. Yeah. And then so I had assumed that you made the piece before, but so I guess you knew you had gone into Whitney and then you were then deciding what to make after.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, that's interesting. How much time did you have to make the video?
1: I guess um, I was working on it from September 2018 until March 2019.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. That's a lot of time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I felt like as not, I mean, it was still felt like Rush. Yeah,
0: of course. Yeah.
1: But yeah, I like thought of the idea and then I emailed the curators and asked them if they thought it was a good idea. And then I thought that like part of it, I could shoot in Senegal, like my ideas kind of led me there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so then I made this like PDF about like what I had shot so far and was like, can you like give me money to go to Senegal to finish and it? And they said yes? Yeah. So That's that was awesome. really nice. I sent them, I think like I tried to be organized yeah. <laughs> about it. So it seemed like I would actually be doing the thing. So then I went to Senegal and that was the first time me, I so like studio oriented around how I shoot video. So it was my first time where I like needed someone else to be doing, holding the camera Oh yeah, all yeah, of that. yeah. and being out in public space shooting, which is just not my I realized that I don't like working that way at all but it was a cool it was a good it was a good learning experience like I'm glad I tried making video that way
0: you don't think you're gonna do go back to that
1: I mean maybe but I would do it in like it would have to be like because it really has to happen Yeah. because it's not like a process that I enjoy I remember like even like on the I went to this place called the house of slaves on Gory Island, which is like a tourist destination, but also like the narrative around it was that it was like the last place people were kept before they were sent out on transatlantic slave trade. So like a lot of politicians will stop there on their African Mm -hmm. tour and pose and make a speech, you know, like Pope or Obama. And so it's not like, actually, it didn't actually, it wasn't actually used for that specific purpose in reality, but like, the island was like obviously built on the slave trade. And like, in some ways it's like, does it really matter? Cause it sort of holds that place for people. Like, yeah. Um, the kind of sort of a pilgrimage site. And so there there's this door that faces out onto the Atlantic ocean and they call it the door of no return. And it's like kind of really, just really dramatic thing.
0: Right. You enter and through so, that door, right?
1: Yeah. And so in the very first shot, when I get in there, I had to go through like a lot of trouble to get, you know, permission to shoot in there. I had to uh, shoot on a day when it was closed. Right. Cause uh-huh. otherwise it's usually full of tourists. The first shot, I, like, trip and fall out of the door of no return and, like, (laughs) sprain my ankle. Oh, no. Yeah, so so much of the video editing was editing out the fact that I'm, like, limping, like, in the whole thing. Oh, no. (laughs) And then I was, like, all alone on Gory Island. I couldn't walk. It was my birthday. The actual hotel I was staying in, like, my hotel room was actually, like, slaves stayed in there um, with slaves' quarters back in the day. Wow. And I was just like, what? I was like, my ancestors are not pleased with this turn <laughs> of events right here.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was surprised you didn't shoot in the hotel. That would have been also been an interesting mm-hmm. site. But yeah.
1: That's a place that's weird about permits too. They're really intense about permits. Oh, and,
0: and in Senegal specifically?
1: And on Goree Island, because uh, it's kind of very picturesque and stuff. So yeah. I was only able to get permission to be like directly inside of the the house Ah. of slaves and nowhere else on the island.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. I've never done that. I never had to ask for permission yet to film in a place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. What was that process like of being selected for the Whitney?
1: Yeah. I mean, they reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be in the show. I had met the curators because Rue, who's one of the curators on my mailing list, because I had had a studio visit with her when I was doing a residency at the Museum of Arts and Design. And that was because when I was doing that residency, they, like, asked you, like, oh, are there people that you'd want to do a studio visit with? And Uh I really, like, loved that Black Feminist show at the Brooklyn Museum. Uh So then I looked up, like, oh, who curated that? And so then at the time, this was, like, 2017 or something.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, so at the time, so Rue had... Been on the curatorial team for that, yeah. and at the time, I think she was still working at the Brooklyn Museum. So I I said that I, it would be cool to meet her, and so I had a studio visit with her in 2017. So that's why she's on my mailing list. And then when I had um, the show Reparation Hardware in 2018 at Larry, which was a gallery in like Lower East Side Chinatown, uh, rue asked me if she and Jane could come see the show. Uh, So then I met up with them there. And then maybe the summer after that, then they asked me if I wanted to be in the biennial.
0: Sounds so casual. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. No, I always imagined it'd be like a studio visit and lots of like back and forth, sort of. That was sort of what I imagined in my head. That's I was curious
1: yeah very very mystifying it's like very i remember when when they asked me if i wanted to be in the show i was like oh i guess now i'm like a professional artist (laughs) or something i see that's what this means like i'm an artist artist
0: yeah (laughs) yeah you're not a professional till you get into the whitney venue i guess
1: i don't know i don't know what i was thinking i just was like wow i just thought that was i just thought it was really crazy i don't know
0: yeah yeah um something that what I'm curious about is also like your decision to make most of your videos available online in full. Cause like I didn't, I wasn't actually, I think I was in Germany at the time of the last Whitney Bainio. So I just, I didn't have a chance to go see it, so, but I was able to see your, your video online. And I know this is like a a subject that I think different video artists waver back and forth in. Do you make the video online? Do you insist on viewing it in the way that the artist wants it to be viewed? And so I'm just curious how, how you decided to make your videos available online and um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, unless there was, like, a, a really specific way the video needed to be projected or seen or lit or something, I don't see why anyone would not put their video online, mm-hmm. um, in my opinion. I mean, for me, it's, like, they're the emissaries out of the studio, like, the thing that can, like, kind of coalesce my ideas and speak to the world. And so I just want them to be able to be meet people wherever they are, you know? I also just like how when you work in video, it can be shown and reshown in all kinds of different formats on one screen, on one surface, and one. Yeah. And, and so that's like, I know, like for some people, it's like the work would be undermined by being seen in the wrong context. But for me, it like I'm thinking about these sorts of forms that just bounce around the internet, and so it's fine by me if it does that too
0: yeah i think the other question that i think a lot of video artists also have to contend with is sort of like you know what is a product and then so like if it's online you it's harder to sell the video the videos already sort of impossible to sell for most for most video artists i think
1: yeah do you think it makes a difference like in terms of sales if the videos online like i feel like i have no
0: idea i have no idea
1: yeah because i i don't know i feel like does someone buy a video to say oh i'm the only person who can see
0: this video I don't know. It's something that I think, I think about a lot, but I don't have an answer to That's what I was curious to pick your brain about
1: the only entity that's ever bought a video of mine is the Whitney museum. <laughs> so I don't think they have a motivation in that way either. So I don't know. I always thought when someone bought a video, it's probably just about like a, just a show of support or yeah, something. <laughs> support.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't know. I don't have an, I don't have an answer for that. Um, <laughs> One other thing that I was curious about in a lot of your works, I don't know if you still use this a lot, but you you use the word deferral a lot, like deferral of desires, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, deferred intimacy. And I'm just curious, like, you know, when you use it, how do you see using this deferral within your own work um, and how do you embed it in your own work?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think like maybe when I think about deferral, I'm thinking about maybe some kind of situation that I'm trying to maybe almost undermine in the work just insofar as I'm thinking about maybe like say the deferral of pleasure or resolution that like say, okay, even like in the context of reparations like, Oh, we'll deal with it later or something. Mm -hmm. Or like, Oh, just like generally maybe the role of futurity, even when politicians like talk about our children all the time, like it feels so (laughs) much like it's about not naming what's happening right now as like really happening. And yeah. So I don't know, I guess maybe my work, does that sometimes too that's a really good question because I never really thought about that word in the context of like the actual things I'm making
0: mm-hmm. I mean I, I see it also in terms of just I mean the use of video is sort of a deferral pleasure because I think most people don't even see video as art and I don't know about your experience but also when I talk to a lot of curators there they see the video as like these curious things most 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 curators or some students are you know they see art as something that has to be sold Not all of them, but a good number, like, oh, well, how do you sell this? Or like, there's just like a quirky thing that I do, you know, it's not like the real art, the real arts, like the painting or the sculpture or whatever. And so I I thought about in terms of like, yeah, the deferral of pleasure is, is, you know, reference to also the choice of, you know, your medium.
1: Yeah, that's a that's really interesting. Yeah, that seems like a real kind of like a prevailing situation that a lot of video artists find themselves in. I would say like from my like particular perspective or way it's been for me that hasn't been the case really. Just like I think like because my videos are kind of short and stuff, they yeah. exist almost for a person who's like as impatient as I am. Yeah. And like maybe like could give uh certain kinds of pleasure through like sound or color yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And not ask like I think they could if it's like I I like to think like my favorite works of art are like really generous or something. Yeah. So like they could give someone a lot of depth or they could not ask a lot of someone both or something at the same time. Yeah. I think.
0: It's hard to get that sweet spot.
1: Yeah. So like I haven't really had an interaction with someone where they're like, "How do you sell these things?" Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's just kind of random that that's the way it's gone for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. I mean, I think it's 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 really great that everything as the path that you've taken is is amazing. I think. Um, you know, what do you have anything planned moving forward or? I assume your, your schedule is probably just as up in the air as everyone else's.
1: Yeah. Weirdly another just weird thing. I actually, I mean, here's the thing is like, there's a lot of stuff that I have planned, planned for a long time out, but like, who knows if it all, like, I still feel like nowadays it's like, I can't trust anything to like happen, Yeah. but there's a lot of things I'm like working towards. I'm making a video right now this week. That's like, super different from my other work at least to me it's like all out of appropriated footage mainly uh. um, and i'm making it for next month it's a uh, it's kind of about like dr Sabe, that like health guru and also miss cleo <laughs> okay. from the telemarketing yeah and um <laughs> and uh yeah so i'm making that and it's for this place called uh, jacob lawrence gallery uh-huh. that's a part of university of washington and uh, part of this thing called Black embodiments Studio, mm-hmm. um, which I think is like a writing art writing black art writing residency so they partly commissioned it to their part of University of Washington also. Mm-hmm. And so basically it's like they don't have a budget to ship any objects out so I'm trying to figure out like how to make something that's video and then maybe like images that they can print out over there
0: mm-hmm. um, as photographs you mean
1: yeah. And so I'm working on that right now. And then maybe I'll see how the project evolves over time. But I'm feeling like good about trying a lot of, I felt like I just have always been like really like, trying to make stuff by this deadline and then not having a whole bunch of time since I left school to really reflect on my process, yeah. like a whole bunch or unpack it. Cause I feel like when someone asks you to do something, it's based off of what you did before. So then yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. you're like
1: going to be working on something that's in the mode of what you did before. Yeah. And I feel like now that I'm back and I can like have, and I have a studio at pioneer works, I can like,
0: Oh, nice. Go to the
1: studio, like, in a really regular way and get, like, a lot of feedback yeah, in a way yeah. that I didn't when I was in Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to make stuff that just doesn't look like anything I've made before.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I I assume you also had a lot of time to reflect this past seven, eight months during the time of COVID, right? Or were you busy as well?
1: I mean, I guess my teaching kept going and became, oh, right, like, yeah. harder because I had to, like, yeah. come up with a whole new way to yeah. do it. Yeah um so yeah I mean I think maybe just like all of us it prompted reflection just because it's such a paradigm shift that I had more reflection but I don't know if it actually added up to more free time
0: yeah I always thought that for me like zoom teaching in some ways is more work than, than yeah like doing an actual studio class
1: yeah it just can keep going in this way and especially at the way I was working that we couldn't have a synchronous class anymore. So I could never have a crit where like everyone was there and I have to break it up into all kinds of times and also to work around all the different, I had one class where one student was in Hawaii and then there was one student who was in Turkey and that was like the range of time zones oh, I was trying to work with or around. And so now the class I'm going to start teaching, at least it meets everyone's there at the same time for a fixed amount of yeah. time. So I hope that helps.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Well, um, I don't have any other questions. Anything I missed or that you want to talk about? Any plugs? Um, any last words?
1: Any plugs? I don't know. Hello, everyone. I hope, I hope everyone keeps making lots of good art. Yeah. <laughs> or lots of okay art. We can make okay art, too.
0: Yeah it's hard to grade yeah. art right as we said
1: yeah <laughs> I don't I know what's like,
0: okay art and what's good art anymore
1: yeah I think I just like now feel like I'm making art again or something like I made art I, yeah I just now feel like I can feel grounded enough like with all this craziness to like come up with new ideas that I actually can get behind and keep working on
0: <laughs> yeah yeah
1: I like start and then hate it and then start and then hate it
0: what, what, what at what point do you start hating something
1: so that that's the thing is that I like was it was happening way too fast like the past few months it would be like I would hate it the next day oh. <laughs> I like wake up the next day and hate the idea
0: <laughs> would you so would you start filming it or it's all in your head and then you start filming
1: start filming okay yeah
0: yeah cool well thank you Ilana thanks so much for chatting with me
1: yeah thank you so much for inviting me I really uh, I'm looking forward to listening to more of your podcast, too. Oh,
0: thank you, Alana. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Talk to you later. Cool. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Z1 Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www. Seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.